What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today's going to be a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. If you guys want your question answered on the podcast, just keep an eye out for that Q&A box that I throw up every now and then on Instagram, um, and I'll say it's for the podcast. So usually that opens the door for longer questions, maybe more personal questions. So definitely got a good crop of questions here, so let's jump into it. First question is from at RKFitness1, and she says, should weight be increasing on every single exercise every single week? And I'm going to rephrase the question to say, should reps or weight be increasing on every single exercise every single week? Like, should you be beating last week's effort every single time you go into the gym? The short short answer is no. I'd like to rephrase that because I, I hear people say that a lot, right? Beat yourself week to week. I've said it before. I think we need to be saying you should try to match or beat what you did in previous weeks, right? You should try to match or beat in previous weeks. Are you going to increase on every single exercise every single week? No, definitely not. There are too many factors at play. And we're going to talk about a couple of scenarios in a second where that might be plausible. But going into the gym with the expectation that you're going to beat last week's effort on every exercise every single week, not the case. You should be trying to match or beat week to week. And there are some scenarios where it's like maybe you're progressing really well in your earlier movements, right? You're, you're, do, you're squatting first and your squat is progressing week to week. It's going really great. But you do leg extensions at the end of the workout. And because your squats are getting harder and harder and harder, by the time you get to leg extensions, maybe your legs are smoked. Maybe your quads are just fucked up. And they don't progress as linearly as you're seeing your squat go up. So right there, you might have a scenario where you're progressing really well in your earlier movements. But later in the workout, you're seeing, you know, a little bit more of that matching last week's and maybe increasing by a little bit. Um, Not as much progress is being made on those later movements. But in context, if you are matching last week's effort in a more fatigued state, remember, you're more fatigued every week you come to the gym, right? Every week from your first week to the week before you deload, you are accruing more and more fatigue. So if you come into the gym in a more fatigued state than last week and you repeat, you match last week's effort, that is progress, especially on those later movements. So I was thinking about this question on the drive home and I was thinking of four scenarios where matching or beating is a really practical um, mindset to go into the gym with. The first scenario is if you're new to training, if you're a newbie. If you're new to training, you adapt so quickly to the training stimulus that your intent should be to make progress week to week, right? You're making neurological adaptations, you're making physical adaptations, physiological adaptations so quickly that you should be going up week to week. The second scenario is if you unknowingly leave some reps in reserve early on in your training block. And I say unknowingly because some people just aren't familiar with how to push themselves. So maybe on week one, you stopped at 10 reps, but you really gunned ahead like with people, with a coach screaming at you, you could have gotten 13, 14, 15 reps. Well, in that circumstance, you left some reps in reserve unknowingly in week one. Well, week two, you clearly have some more reps in the tank. So if you stopped at 10, but you could have really done 15, then your expectation should be to do 11. And even if you aren't familiar with, you know, uh, what it feels like to go zero RAR all the way to failure, one RAR, like you will find out because if you go into the gym with the expectation to beat and you stopped at 10, but you really could have done 15, you're going to find out that you could have done 15 because this week you'll do 11, next week you'll do 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and maybe even 16 by then. And so if you unknowingly left reps in reserve in that first week, then you have left room above that to push yourself and to improve week to week. I hope that makes sense. If you stop at 10 when you could have done 15, maybe you aren't familiar that you could have done 15 because you're not familiar with how to push yourself. That's okay because you come into the gym next week and you're like, okay, I have to beat 10. You do 11, great. 
Next week you come in, you're like, I did 11, so I do 12. And eventually you will find out what you're capable of. And that's why for a lot of my clients who are maybe a little bit new to really pushing themselves, I'm okay with them. You know, I don't tell them to kill themselves on week one because I know, man, if they just leave a couple reps in the tank without telling them anything, because that's what we tend to do. You know, for most people, it's not a default setting to fucking push themselves all the way to failure. Most people want to quit when it gets a little bit hard. So if you do that and you left two, three, four reps in the tank, guess what? Next week, let's say you left four reps in the tank on week one. Next week, it'll be three reps because you have to beat yourself. And next week, it'll be two reps in reserve and then one rep in reserve. And then eventually you will push yourself all the way to failure and you will find out what you're capable of. The third scenario is knowingly leaving reps in the reserve. Like the same scenario as the first scenario, but you did it as a strategy. And this is a strategy that I think advanced intermediate, late intermediates and advanced people who are focused on maximizing hypertrophy really need to, to internalize. And it's like, don't go balls to the wall on week one. Strategically, because you're an intermediate, you probably do know what it's like to take your sets close to failure. So strategically leave a couple reps in reserve, two, three reps in reserve, right? Within that five rep, we know that sets taken within five reps in reserve, like maybe three or four reps in reserve, are all hypertrophic. They're all causing hypertrophic stimulus. They're all building muscle. So maybe in week one, don't go to all-out failure. Because if you go to all-out failure on week one, you aren't going to be able to adapt. You're not a newbie anymore. You're not going to make those super fast adaptations. If you go to failure in that same example, maybe you could have done 15. If you absolutely do 15 on week one and all the way to failure, you smoked yourself, you're probably not going to get 16 and 17 and 18. That's not how it works. You'd be the strongest person on earth, right? If you just added a rep every single week. So if you're more intermediate and advanced, you're probably going to want to, on purpose, knowingly leave a couple reps in reserve in week one, and that will leave you some room to improve week to week. So if you, in that same example, maybe you're very well aware that what you're capable of, you stop at 12 reps when you could have done to 15. 12 reps is still hypertrophic because it's within a couple reps from failure. And then next week's 13, next week's 14, next week's 15, next week maybe 16, and then you deload, and then you start again. So that third scenario would be knowingly leaving some reps in reserve, which I think is something that intermediates and advanced absolutely need to be doing. Because if you go to all-out failure on week one, you will burn out by the second or third week. You will find that your reps are actually going down. You might do 15 on week one. You might do 16 on week two, and then 14, and then 13, and then 10. What the fuck? Why are you going down? You're going down because you're now in an overreached state because you absolutely smoked yourself by going all the way to failure on week one. And the fourth scenario where you see people increasing on everything every week is when you adjust your reps just to get more. Like your reps become shit just so that you can beat last week's effort. So maybe you're doing squats is a good example. And you got 10 really great reps on week one. And then you got 11 on week two and now 12 on week three. And it's starting to get really fucking hard. You're, you're all the way to failure on your squats, but you know, you really want to beat last week's effort. So you come in the gym and instead of doing 13 really great reps, you kind of get a little bit like you don't go as low or you go quicker or you round your back just to get that 14th rep. So you lower the the how good your reps are just to get another one. And I see this all the time. Like, I don't want you to make your reps more shitty in the pursuit of beating last week's effort. Be honest. We're not here to beat last week's effort. We're here to build muscle. And if you have to, you know, cut your squat depth by six inches so that you can get that extra 14th rep, who gives a shit? That's not important. Like, that's not a better set. Like, keep your range of motion standard and be honest. If you can't beat what you did last week, that's fine. But don't gamify it. Don't cheat yourself. You're like, okay, got to get that 14th squat. And then all of a sudden you're doing quarter squats because you really just want to get to 14 because you think you have to beat yourself week to week. That's not as important.
Cool. That was a, that was a long answer to that first question, but I think that's something that is a big misconception. Like you should be beating yourself week to week if you're a newbie or if you rep if you left reps in reserve in those early weeks, either knowingly or unknowingly, or this scenario where you shouldn't be going up every week because what you're actually doing is just you know, making your reps really shitty. You're kind of bringing down the threshold of how good your reps are just so you can beat yourself week to week. I don't care if you beat yourself week to week if your reps suck. You know, if you're not touching the, the the bar to your chest on your bench press so that you can get an extra two reps. Like who gives a shit? You're not there to be like, oh my God, I did 14 guys. I did 14. Like nobody cares. Like you're there to grow your chest. So do the things you need to do to grow your chest, which is keeping a high threshold, a high standard for your movements. Cool. Second question here. I know that was a long one. Uh, it was a good one though. Is from Kim J. Noel. And she says, gyms are closing soon and I'm in the middle of a glute focused muscle build. What are the best glute exercises using only heavy dumbbells and bands? Thank you so much. I love your content. Thanks, Kim. That's awesome. Um, I actually think this is a, a part of the body that isn't terribly difficult to work, um, at least for a little while at home. And the first thing I'll say is embrace higher rep ranges that you might not be utilizing in the gym, like even if it hurts more, and especially if it hurts more. If you haven't you know, done exercises in the 15 to 30 rep range because you're in the gym and you're always banging the heavy weights around, like... Take what we would call a metabolite phase, which is a phase where you're, you know, basically when you do really high rep sets, you build up metabolites in the muscle. It's like that lactic acid, that burn feeling and take a whole block of working in that 15 to 30 rep range. It's going to fucking suck. It's going to hurt, but it's going to be novel. It's going to be new. And so you can still be really effective, effective at home, whatever exercises I'm about to say, if you embrace the higher rep ranges. So I, I think I'm thinking of like four or five, I think a, a Bulgarian split squat with a forward lean. You know, that forward lean and a lot of those lunge patterns is going to help you focus on the glutes a little bit more. So a Bulgarian split squat in general, but maybe emphasize a little bit of a forward lean. Uh, you can still do RDLs and sumo RDLs, wonderful exercises, absolutely with dumbbells. And you can even utilize, you said, and bands. So you can utilize uh, dumbbells and bands, which especially for the glutes can be good because you're that that band assistance or that band resistance is going to be most emphasized in that like hip extension when you're really utilizing your glutes and squeezing your butt. So I think uh, RDL patterns where you're like standing in the band and holding the dumbbells and you're holding the band like in your hand with the dumbbells can be really great or attaching a band to your waist and then attaching the band to something behind you so that when you stand up in the RDL, you really have to squeeze your butt against the band can be really great. I also think, man, high rep hip hip thrusts, uh, 1.25 hip thrusts, right? Where you're doing like 1.25 or one and a half reps. High rep hip thrusts can be brutal. And I think when we get in the gym and we do hip thrusts, it's one of those exercises where we're like trying to move as much weight as possible. Like take a second, work in the 20 to 30, 20 to 40 rep range um, with your hip thrusts. Add a pause, add a one and a half rep. Um, I think actually a hip circle, it can be really great at home to kind of create uh, more tension without having more load, right? You don't have more weight. You can only put so much weight in your lap and, and still make it comfortable. But adding a hip circle like a booty band um, can make it just per pound hurt a whole fuckload more. Uh, two other ones would be sumo deficit squats. So if you have something to stand on, so if you have something at home to stand on, maybe you have a stair stepper uh, or, or like one of those like step benches or another bench and you can straddle uh, like a free space and you can hold the dumbbell in between your legs and kind of get a little bit deeper in those squats. I think sumo deficit squats are a great exercise uh, and front foot elevated reverse lunges. So that front foot elevation will force you to get a little bit deeper, a little bit better glute stretch. So stepping on, you know, having your front foot uh, be on something like, you know, I have clients who are right now working at home, they're doing it on a textbook. 
um, or finding a plate or like you do have a little stair or maybe an actual stair in your house, something that's elevated, you know, one to four inches, not too high. That's going to help you get a little bit deeper, a little bit better glute, uh, glute engagement. So I think those are all really great ones, but I think if you're trying to replicate your normal in the gym rep ranges, you just don't have the load to do that. So make sure you're embracing those higher rep ranges. The engine mom. Next question is from the engine mom. And she asks, are Metcons one to two times a week detrimental to muscle growth while following a strength program? Wow, I fucking love this question. I'm going to try not to go off on too many tangents here. Uh, right off the right off the bat, detrimental? No, definitely not. Absolutely not detrimental. In a, in a proper design strength program, if I add one or two Metcons a week, am I all of a sudden not going to build muscle? No. But I do think that there's, we need to recognize that there's a trade-off. If you're, you know, most people are limited by, by time. And beyond that, we all have a finite amount of recovery capacity and effort to put forth towards exercise. A scenario where you're doing like one to two Metcons, right? Let's say you're doing one to two Metcons and you're only doing one to two strength training because you only have, you know, two to four days a week to, to, to exercise. Absolutely. It's going to, it's going to be detrimental. Um, you said in the context of following a strength program. So I'll touch on that in a second, but I think for most people, if you add, if everybody added in one to two Metcons per week, I don't think everybody would have enough time to get three to five strength training sessions in per week. So I think you have to just think about, you know, where you're putting your time. I think most people are, are limited in terms of their exercise, by how much time they have to commit to it. So if your goal is building muscle, I think you have to devote the majority of your time to doing that. And I think there's a, an opportunity cost in terms of time, right? And effort and recoverability, right? You can only recover from so much exercise per week. And if you are doing four, let's say you're doing a proper design strength program. You're, you're training four to five times a week, uh, and, you know, with enough volume, with enough intensity. And then you layer on top of that one to two Metcons, like not everybody's going to be able to recover from that. I, I think most people wouldn't. I would say that's probably too much on average for most people. You know, if we're saying a Metcon's like a 15 to 25 minute, like a hit style with some weights, CrossFit-y kind of stuff. Man, I think four to five strength trainings and one to two Metcons is a fuck ton of training. And I think for most people, it's going to be too much for them. Um, I don't think it's detrimental to muscle growth. I think it might be just too much for you to recover from. And yes, okay, circle, you know, circular logic. Yes, it might be detrimental to muscle growth because you just fucking burn out. And I would say it's too much to recover from because you really need to have your calories in check if you're doing that, right? And absolutely can't or shouldn't be doing that in a, in a deficit. Um, so you need your calories in check and you probably need to be eating way more than you think because that's a fuck ton of calorie burn. That's a lot of adaptation recovery your body's trying to make. So adequately fueling it with calories, with carb enough carbohydrates, enough protein, like getting enough sleep, stress management, it just makes everything else more, uh, more important because you're telling your body that it needs to do more. Right. So just remember, there's a finite amount of recoverability, right? Your body can only recover from so much training and you probably have a finite amount of time to put forth towards exercise. And then you also have a finite amount of effort, just mental, like central nervous system effort that you can put forth towards exercise. And the more like all of these things go into the same bucket. So doing more of something means doing less of something else. And if you say, no, it doesn't mean doing less of something else because I'm going to do both things 100 percent. Just know that that's. That's a lot. And I'm not saying it's too much for you. I don't know you. I don't know this context. And there are going to be people out there who have their calories and protein and, you know, their, their stress management, their recovery, so to speak, in check, and they can handle it. But for most people, from people I've worked with, man, if you're doing four to five days of strength training and one to two Metcons, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough to recover from. So I don't think it's detrimental to strength training, to, to, to muscle building. I don't think there's something physiologically 
like people talk about the interference effect where doing cardio causes different adaptations from building muscle. And, you know, I don't think this is that because it's not, that would be more so for endurance training. And I wouldn't even make that big of an argument if you were doing one to two endurance, like endurance runs a week. I think you can still build muscle. I just think that we have to recognize that there's an opportunity cost. There's a trade-off. And the more time you spend doing something not lifting weights, the less time you're spending doing weights. The more effort and recoverability, recovery capacity you put forth doing Metcons, the less your body's going to have physiologically towards building muscle. I think that that's more of what it is. And you said one to two Metcons. So I think to be specific, man, if you're doing one Metcon, I don't see a big difference. But if you're doing five strength training sessions a week and two Metcons, now I think we have to really pose a real question. Is like, is that too much? Because it, it probably is. I guess the last thing I would say is, man, having an aerobic part of your training is probably a good idea. Um, I don't think it needs to be two hard Metcons a week. It could be something as similar, uh, as simple as just getting steps. But if you like doing Metcons or short hit training style on top of your training, that's okay. It's fine. Just be honest about what you can recover from. If you're feeling burnt out, it's just ha I just see that all too often where we're trying to do everything at once. People are like, oh, I want to build muscle. Oh, I also want to do a couple days of cardio. I also want to do this. It's like, Shit, man, even if you had everything in check, calories, protein, carbs, sleep, stress management, it's still going to be tough to recover and adapt from that. So just be honest about your finite amount of time and effort and recoverability. Cool. Next question is from at very good dog training says, what do you think about vitamin D during these colder months? If so, how much? This is a good question. I think first and foremost, I'm not a doctor. If you want to know your vitamin D levels, go see a doctor, get some blood work done. But I also think that it's very likely that you will potentially benefit from supplementing with vitamin D. I mean, mo uh, many, 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 way too many Americans, at least, are vitamin D deficient, um, especially during those colder months, especially at those higher latitudes. So I think the answer is go see your doctor, get your vitamin D checked. I have to say that because this is not, I cannot, I'm not, I'm not going to be prescriptive here. But I do think if you, in the meantime, while you book that appointment, I think if you went to the to the store and you got anywhere from like two to 5,000 IU a day and started taking that, I think a lot of people, listen, vitamin D toxicity is extremely unlikely. So I think you will be totally fine if you start supplementing with vitamin D. But I also think getting your blood work is just a good idea. And people should be getting blood work, you know, once or twice a year anyway. So ask your doctor and see what he says. Um, I think also a couple of things would be Find a vitamin D, like a D3, that's also combined with a K2. It just helps with vitamin D absorption. Um, and, you know, what, what, while we're on the topic, like what is, what, is, what is vitamin D good for? I think that we think of four things. It's like bone health, mood, honestly. And I think that that's the context of this question is like how many people are suffering from seasonal affective disorder? Like vitamin D plays a part in that. And it's a real thing. And so vitamin D is important in affecting our mood. So bone health, mood natural energy levels and immune system seem to be the fourth topics that I would say vitamin D tends to touch on. So get your vitamin D checked by your doctor, but I think starting at like two to 5,000 IUs and finding one that pairs with a K2 is is a, a probably a good idea. Um, I use a company called Zhao, Z-H-O-U, and it's on Amazon. I, they don't sponsor me. I wish they did, but it's a good product. Uh, it's a 5,000 IU with a K2 with it. Um, I tend to take that dose for, you know, six to eight months out of the year. And then during those warmer months where I'm outside a whole lot more, I tend to either drop down to like one to 2000 IU or, you know, nix it entirely and make sure I'm getting outside for sure. Um, anything else on vitamin D? I think one more thing would be vitamin D is fat soluble and you can take, it's stored in the body for much longer. So you can take large doses of vitamin D less frequently if you want. So if you're somebody who's like, hey, I'm going to take 
you know, 3,000 IU a day, like you could take all of that at once. So 21,000 IU at once a week, and it would have equally beneficial effects. So if you skip a day, like you can double up. And so that doesn't, that doesn't work with all vitamins, but with vitamin D and a lot of fat soluble vitamins that are stored in the body for a bit longer, like you can take them a bit more in bulk. Um, I don't mean in bulk, like massive overdosing on them, but I mean, you can take them more cumulatively. So you can double up on one day and you miss a day and it's going to be totally fine. Cool. At Kodiak Fitness NJ asks, what's the main difference you've seen between those who are able to maintain healthy habits versus those who are constantly quote unquote good for a short period of time and then go back to their old habits? I think the number one quality for people who are able to sustain healthy habits is actually the ability to deviate from those quote unquote healthy habits. I think the people who are who, who, you know, who you said are constantly good, uh, constantly good for a short period and go back to their old habits are people who have not learned how to be flexible with those habits. Because I think, I think the people who will make the most success aren't the people who are going to white knuckle it and be hundred percent on point all time or all the time. The people that are going to make the most success are the people that are, that can go 80% and not feel guilty about the 20%. So I think the main difference between people who are able to maintain their habits are people who are actually able to deviate from those habits and not feel guilty about it. It's the 80, 20 people who are going to thrive, not the, you know, hundred percent people all the time, white knuckling it. That doesn't last forever. That leads to burnout. Most people are not going to be able to sustain that. And that's the question. It's like, how do you sustain your healthy habits? Well, man, you learn how to be fucking flexible with them. And I think that would be the number one thing that I want to bring to the world, to my clients as a coach is like, Hey, we might count calories. We might track your workouts, right? But we're going to be flexible with this. And we're going to understand that life is 80, 20. And that if you go away for a weekend or you go out to dinner with the, with the girls or you're on vacation or, you know, you're at Thanksgiving, like we don't need to track or we don't need to stress. Like we're able to be flexible with those habits. We're not locked in. And I think that's where meal plans really go awry. It's like, here are my, ha my healthy habits are I eat this, this, and this, and this. Well, guess the fuck what? What happens when you can't, when you can't do that? Um, so I think the number one, you said, what's the main difference? I think the main difference would be the people who, and I don't think it's something you should learn on your own. I think this is part of working with a coach. It's the ability to actually deviate from those healthy habits. And I think the, the ability to deviate is actually the healthiest habit, right? It's going to be the thing that gives you the best chance to sustain. I think the people who will make the most success aren't the ones who can white knuckle it to be 100% on point all the time. The people that are going to make the most success are the people who can go 80% and not feel guilty about the 20%. And a couple of things that I thought about about this question is like, People picking the wrong habits. Like, what does the wrong habit even mean? I think the wrong habit is like something that's, you're doing it because something somebody else did. Or you're doing it without the mindset of sustainability. You're picking it because it, it will yield a quick and fast result. You're not picking certain habits with sustainability in mind. Like the habits that you're picking for fat loss or muscle gain or, 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 or more, more nutritious eating should be with the goal of sustainability. You should be thinking about it. Hey, like I'm going to enact this habit because I think it will yield the, the, whatever I want, the result that I want, but I also see it as something I could sustain long-term. You said, you know, people who are good for a short period of time versus people who just, you know, uh, people who are good for a short period of time and go back to their old habits are people who picked, you know, habits that you can't do for longer than a short period of time. So I think picking a habit with sustainability in mind is super, is super uh, uh, important. And then one more thing would be, I think, you know, people who have picked, uh, uh, who are quote unquote good for a short period of time and then go back are also people, maybe they picked the right habits, right? Maybe you actually picked habits that are really great for you. Maybe they are sustainable, but maybe you have expectations of how fast things are supposed to happen. 
Maybe you picked a really great habit. Maybe you picked uh, working out with weights three times a week and eating, you know, 0.8 to 1.2 grams of protein per day. Those are fucking fantastic habits. But maybe your goal is to build muscle and maybe you quit after a month because you thought you were going to be fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I think even if you pick the right habits, maybe your expectations about how fast things are supposed to go is just out of whack. So I think as a coach, it's about helping people pick habits with sustainability in mind, with their lifestyle in mind. Like help your clients pick the right habits. I mean, what are the right habits? They're, they're habits that you enjoy, that you can sustain, that also yield the results you want, that don't sacrifice your mental health. And I think that that's something that should be worked on together with a coach. Um, yeah, so I hope that helps. I think I think the ability to deviate from your, you know, 100% all the time, and I'm not gonna give a fucking speech on all or nothing mentalities. You guys know how I feel about that, but I think it's the person who can go 80% and not feel guilty about the 20%, that's gonna make long-term progress. Awesome. How much time we have? Oh, I got a couple more, awesome. This question is from at Alichka. Alichka. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, and she asks, how to deal with family members who are against your fitness and lifestyle goals and discourage you? Man, buckle up, because I am a bit more cutthroat than most people. I fucking cannot stand this shit. And I ask this question to my clients in one in our um, weekly check-in sometimes. It's like, how's the support from family members? Like, how is that going? Because it is important. It's not important that you get a ton of support. I mean, that would be great, but it's more important that you're not having what I call like the quote unquote, live a little dementors who are like, yeah, come on, just live a little, like straight up fucking dementors. Um, and I think a couple things to fundamentally understand is when you work on yourself, you're gonna make other people uncomfortable because you are a reflection of what they are not doing, what they are or what they are not doing. And so if you're making someone uncomfortable, that is their problem, not yours. And you could almost go as far as to say is it probably means you're doing something right. If you're making people around you uncomfortable because you're trying to improve yourself, man, that is their fucking problem. And I'm not saying that you should just cut, cut everybody out of your life who doesn't really support you. But I think some sometimes, yeah, I think sometimes you need to look at your life and the people around you. Listen, you can't always cut out people all the time, but I think you should reasonably consider not giving that person person uh, uh, control over your emotions and not kind of giving them that power because man, fuck people who don't support you especially when it comes to your health, man. Like you live one life, you, you're trying to improve your quality of life. And I'm not just talking about trying to be shredded. I'm talking about improve your quality of life. The people who love you will support you. And you know, when you work on yourself, you're gonna make other people uncomfortable. You're gonna be a reflection of what they're not doing. And that doesn't always go well. And family can be a bitch because they feel like they have the right to comment on your habits. Like most people on the street aren't gonna comment on whether you eat you know, the, the the cornbread at Thanksgiving, like, but your family might, because for some reason they feel like, okay, we're related by blood. I'm allowed to talk about your body and your eating habits. They're not. And I think strategically, the first would be to develop that mindset, a little bit of that more resilient mindset, a little bit more of that harder exterior of like, you're not, this isn't your life. This is your problem. If you have an issue with me, you know, trying to work on my health or my life or literally anything, that's their problem. And, um, you know, you don't get to, you don't get to comment on their lives or their their choices and they don't get to comment on yours. And I think that there's a, there are fine lines where people are looking out for you and they're genuinely curious. But I think like you said, people who are, discourage you, who are against your fitness and lifestyle goals. Um, and I think I, I think this question should be in the context of fitness and lifestyle goals that are generally healthy. I think if you're, you know, I think there are situations where people can take it to extremes and you have family members who are just straight up 
concerned, you know, like if you're, you know, if you're suffering from an eating disorder, I think it's reasonable that your people are going to be, you know, against, or, or it might feel that way when, when they talk about your habits. So I think we're answering this question in the context of, you know, you doing things that are generally healthful. Um, and, and I'm definitely, like I said, I'm definitely a little more cutthroat, like, man, the people who love you, and, and I'm not saying cut people out immediately. I'm saying have an honest conversation with somebody and I think it's really powerful and I think it's scary, but because it's scary, it's really powerful. If somebody makes a comment about something you, let's say a scenario where somebody passes you the cornbread, let's say for example, and you don't take a piece and somebody says something about that and you stand up and say, hey, this is my choice. And I'm gonna talk about a couple, like my favorite tactic in a second, but this is my choice. This is my life. I'm happy. And this doesn't have anything to do with you. And I'd really appreciate it if you support me because I'm trying to get healthier. I'm trying to, you know, work on certain biomarkers or whatever it is. And I don't think just passing on the cornbread is going to have some fucking monumental thing. And I don't think you should always pass on the cornbread. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying having an honest conversation face to face with that person say, hey, these are my goals. It's important to me that you respect that. I would love your support, but what I don't need is the discouragement. So if you don't support me, just fucking say nothing. And I've had that conversation with people early on when I was trying to get into the industry and be and, and get my health in order. Um, I had to say, and I think the most important thing is understanding that baseline, what you want is respect from these people. And if you're not, if they're not supporting you, that's almost okay. But what you can't have is a dementor. You can't have these, oh, come on, live a little dementors. And in that same moment, let's say you pass on the cornbread. Uh, or you pass on dessert and someone says, oh, come on, live a little, just have a piece. Like my favorite tactic in the world, because what a lot of people will say is like, oh, I can't, or I shouldn't, or I'm not allowed to, it's not on my plan. Like instead of saying any of those things, because I would classify those as like negative things. Um, what I'd rather you say, and what I think is way more productive and leads the conversation in a more optimistic way is saying, I'm good, I'm good. If someone hands you the cornbread, let's say they say you don't want cornbread. First of all, cornbread is fucking life and I love cornbread. So I'm sorry to the cornbread out there uh, that I'm using this example, but let's say you don't want the cornbread. Instead of saying, oh, no, I can't, I shouldn't, I'm not allowed to say, I'm good, I'm good. Because that act more accurately uh, uh, conveys what you're feeling. You're not not having the cornbread, let's say, because you can't or that you shouldn't or you're not allowed to. You're not having it because you're good. You've weighed the pros and cons you've weighed having the cornbread versus not having the cornbread and you're good. You're not like, I, this is happens to me often sometimes with extended family who don't really know me as well. It's like, I'm not making these decisions and, and hating myself for it. I'm not punishing myself. I'm not depriving myself. I've made decisions that make me the happiest me. And when you say I'm good, what you're conveying is no, 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 I'm fine. I'm not depriving myself. I'm not sitting here crying about what I can't have. I'm not shackled by a plan. I'm not depriving myself from happiness, like I'm good. And so I think saying I'm good with a smile on your face actually conveys that a whole lot better because that's the truth. You're not depriving yourself, maybe you are, um, but you're genuinely okay with the decision that you're making. So I, I want everybody out there who's gonna get shit from their family for, you know, first of all, I think Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, all of that stuff, like they don't matter in the scheme of things. And if you wanna eat things that you don't normally eat, you fucking should. Um, and you know, that goes to, into a different philosophical discussion of what to do in those moments. But I think if there's somebody who's offering food that you don't want, tell them you're good and do it with a smile on your face because that's the truth. You're not sad. You're not feeling like you're punishing yourself. You're good. And so I find that that has worked unbelievably well. And it's a really semantically word choice wise, it's an important change. Okay, what do we have? 30 minutes? I'm gonna do a couple more here. I'm gonna see how many I can get in here. 
Um, next question is from Paulia Raven, Paulia Raven 11. And, uh, he or she says, if you're lifting consistently to gain muscle and eating enough, but your weight doesn't fluctuate whatsoever, what does it mean? Is it good, bad, neither? It's a lot of context here. I'm going to try and answer as best I can. But if you're lifting consistently, right? So you're lifting sufficiently to build muscle and you're eating sufficiently to build muscle. Let's assume that means not in a deficit. But your weight doesn't fluctuate whatsoever, which we can assume now that you're eating at maintenance. What does it mean? It means you're eating at maintenance, right? It means you're training hard, but you're eating at maintenance. So you're not going to drastically gain or lose body weight. And is it good, bad, or neither? The question is, is that what you want to be doing? I don't think it's I don't think it's inherently good or bad. I think if you're lifting consistently to gain muscle and you're eating enough, but your weight's not fluctuating, that means you're eating at around maintenance calories. And it's either good if that's what you want to do or not good if that's not what you want to be doing. Uh, I don't think it's inherently good or bad. I think if in the context of wanting to build the most muscle possible, I would say you're not doing it because you're, you're at maintenance. But in the context of maybe you love that, maybe you're recomping, maybe you're building some muscle and burning some fat and your body weight's staying relatively the same and you're lowering your body fat percentage over time, that's great. And in that context, it's good. But I don't think it's inherently one or the other. I think it's a matter of what you want to be doing. And what it sounds like you're doing is lifting sufficiently to build muscle and eating at maintenance. And what you're doing is body recomposition. And if that's what you want to do, then it's good. And if it's not what you want to do, then it's not good. Excellent. Let me get one more question in here. It says, I am Alicia Schmidt. And she asks, I've been in a surplus since March. And then I went into maintenance in August. Awesome. And she says, how long should I wait before going into a fat loss phase? I'm about 35 pounds over where I was when I started. I'm pretty uncomfortable, but I've been trying to stay focused on the goal. Okay. Um, I think there's a more general question here. And it's the question is, how long should I wait before going into a fat loss phase? So you were in a surplus and then you maintain, and how long do you need to be maintaining before you can go into a fat loss phase? Very simple answer. I think four weeks is plenty. I think one mesocycle of training. So if your mesocycle, your training block is four to six weeks, I think that's plenty of time, and then you can go into a fat loss phase. Um, and if you're not training and you're not using mesocycle programming, like whatever, like four weeks is good enough. You can, at the tail end of a surplus, let's dial back like one quick sec here. The reason you want to do a maintenance phase after a surplus is that the training that you were doing in a surplus, that muscle growth actually happens after over a longer time scale. And so you have muscle that you're building like weeks after your training. So the training you're doing today doesn't actually, that muscle's not built right away. It takes time. There's some delayed muscle growth. And so when you're in a surplus, you're building a really nice, a lot of muscle. And if you go right into a deficit after that, you will probably, like you're going right into a catabolic state. You're probably gonna miss out on some of that delayed muscle growth from the surplus. Right, some of the muscle that you would have built over the next month, you're probably not going to because you immediately went into a deficit. So I think that after a surplus, four to six weeks at maintenance is plenty to kind of get all get the most of that delayed muscle growth from the surplus. So it sounds like you've been at maintenance, you went to maintenance in August. I think you're absolutely you've earned the right to go back into a deficit. I mean, spending that long in at maintenance, kudos to you. I'm proud of you. That sounds awesome. You're welcome to go into a deficit if that's what you want to do right now. I think spending some time at maintenance after a surplus was a great idea to capitalize on those delayed muscle gains, but I think you've done enough now and I think you're totally fine to go into a deficit. All right, guys, that is um, that is the end of the show here. Appreciate everybody who asked a question. You guys are great. These were some wonderful questions and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. 
If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram, or you can email me, jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com, or check out the website, jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.